This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first Bible reading is taken from Psalm 16. Uh, you can find this on page 430 in the Pew Bible. Protect me, O God, for you in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the holy ones in the land, they are the noble, in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. They drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Boundary lines have fallen for me in, ple in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, and can be found on page 843 in the Pew Bibles. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messages ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. They did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Hear the word of the Lord. If you could keep that passage open in front of you, we're going to be looking at that, those extraordinary incidences from the life of Jesus, and let's pray for God's help as we seek to understand him. 
Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we ask, we pray for your grace, that we would not only hear your word with our ears, but also receive it inwardly in our hearts, and that it would show, its, show itself forth in our lives to your glory. Amen. So I want to begin by asking you, do you follow Jesus or are you just a fan? Do you follow Jesus or are you just a fan? Now in the social media age, of course, following someone has become a word that means observing or tracking someone. Look, I have X amount of followers on Twitter, but they're a bit like friends on Facebook, right? They aren't really your friends or your followers, your followers on Twitter, they're really following you to monitor you, they're looking for something interesting or entertaining or wise or controversial or something to get angry about, but not in a deeper sense actually following me. To follow someone in the deeper sense means actually to become their student, to be obedient to their directions to pursue their way of life, to imitate them. It means to have them as your teacher and leader, to become like them. They are your model. And the Bible's word for this is disciple. It's more than being a fan or an admirer to be a disciple, to be a follower. I could say that I'm a fan of Bach and that I love his music, but I'm not a follower of his. The man had 14 children and that's clearly not advisable. Christians are not just observers of Jesus, though, or even fans of his. We don't just admire him. We are followers of his. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, it is well known that Christ consistently used the expression follower. He never asks for admirers, worshippers or adherents. No, he calls disciples. It's not adherents of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. The first name for the Christians that they called themselves was actually The Way. We read that in the book of Acts. That was the name of the movement, The Way, because Christians saw themselves as traveling on the way after Jesus, following on a journey in life after him. Over the next few weeks, as we begin the year, we are going to be plunging into Luke's gospel and asking what it means to truly follow Jesus, not just to admire him or to be his fan, but to really follow him. And the challenge for you and me is, is going to be this. When it comes to Jesus, am I really letting him shape me? Am I following him? Or am I having him at arm's length? Very few people don't admire Jesus of Nazareth. Even some of the most hostile anti-Christians in the world still admire Jesus. He's admired as a teacher, a visionary, or even sometimes as a prophet. But it's an altogether different thing to follow him. You can't do that from a distance. And that's what we see from our passage today from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. Remember to have that open in front of you. And there's two little parts to this passage answering two questions. The first one being, where is Jesus going that I should follow him? Where is he going? And secondly, how can I follow him? 
Where is Jesus going and how can I follow him? So in the first part, in verse 51, from verse 51, where is Jesus going? We see that in that verse, verse 51. There's a sort of a turning point in Luke's gospel, in Luke's story, because we read, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That answers our question, doesn't it? That's where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem. But there's something ominous in Luke's tone because he knows how the story ends. Jesus has been teaching in Galilee, but now he's heading down to the capital because he's got a specific job to do and he's determined to do it. He's not just wandering around hoping to pick up a few followers. He's not meandering. He set himself on a course with determination to head to Jerusalem where he will be killed, rejected by his own people, put to death, and three days later rise. The journey of Jesus leads to the cross. Where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And the shortest journey south was through the land of the Samaritans. We'll hear a bit more about the Samaritans because Jesus is going to teach us a story about a particular Samaritan, one of his most famous stories, in a couple of chapters' time. But at this point, he's travelling through the area of the Samaritans and, of course, they were known for being enemies, implacable enemies of the Jews. They had their own prophetic hope of the Messiah and their own mountain where they worshipped God. And so Jesus has some friends go ahead to book accommodation and food for them. But it turns out the Samaritans are not having any, any of it. They're not having any of his business. Luke says, interestingly, because Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. Jesus' journey of rejection begins with a rejection, which is to say, Jesus, so admired, came in the love of God to save the world and yet will be rejected by the world. But James and John, his disciples, step forward with an interesting suggestion. Do you want us, Jesus, to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, I, I don't know about you, but this is really quite weird, isn't it? Don't you, don't you think it's really odd for James and John to think that they could wield this sort of supernatural power is pretty extraordinary. They think they're in some kind of Marvel comic film. What's going on in their heads? They seem outraged on Jesus' behalf. There might be a dose of racism in here too. You know, those loathsome, ungrateful Samaritans should get what's coming to them. They need to be destroyed. They need to kind of just be obliterated. Reject Jesus, will you? We'll see how you like being zapped. And they might have expected Jesus to say to them, Oh, yes, well, I hadn't thought of that. What a good idea. So glad I got you fellas along for the ride. What would I do without you? But what do we read? Jesus turns and rebukes them. He tells them off. The lesson for James and John, the lesson for us, following Jesus is not about joining a powerful club where you get to condemn the world in his name. 
There's no superiority complex in following Jesus. Following Jesus means following him. Not to a place where your own self-righteousness is upheld. But to Jerusalem. To be rejected with him. It means taking up your cross. Not taking up your weapons. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, in some words that actually came true in his own life, when Christ calls a man, a person, he bids him come and die. Occasionally Christians have used the perverse James and John strategy of convert or be killed, sorry to say. That's not a temptation we here in Australia at the moment face so much. But as the West becomes more secular, too often we Christians wish we could coerce our nation into being more Christian. We see triumphs at the ballot box as a triumph for the gospel. But you can't make followers of Jesus down the barrel of a gun or by wielding a squad of lawyers and parliamentarians. We can only copy the master. And what did he do? Jesus called people to follow him. And very often was met by rejection. Ultimately, God himself will raise up Jesus and his followers. Luke reminds us of that in verse 51, doesn't it? But in the meantime, the followers of Jesus turn the other cheek and pray for those who might persecute us, that they might also follow him. You know, as Luke's story continues in the book of Acts, when the gospel is preached in Samaria to the Samaritans, we discover that many of them indeed finally received the good news of, of Christ and became brothers and sisters in Christ with James and John, who would have, if they'd had their way, had them completely obliterated back in Luke chapter 9. Which leads us now to the second part of our passage where we answer the question, how do I follow Jesus? There's three quick scenes with people who wanted to follow Jesus but didn't quite get what it meant. The first guy's in verse 57. He follows out, I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds just like the right kind of follower, doesn't it? It sounds like he has got it. I'll follow you without any hesitation or qualifications, Jesus. But does he know what this means? Is he really a follower or is he still just a fan? And so Jesus replies with these, these strange and moving words. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Even the animals have their places to be, their burrows and their bowers, their nooks and their crannies. But on the earth... Jesus has no real home, no place to put his feet up and relax. He's not at home, for he is ever being rejected. And if you follow him and not just admire him, you are following a man who is deeply at odds with the world. Don't follow him in the hope that you will become socially more acceptable, that you will gain respectability and acceptance by following Jesus. Don't follow him in the hope of an easier life. With him, you will learn to groan. 
at injustice and evil, especially your own. With him, you will mourn for people's hard-heartedness, for their failure to see the truth about him. With him, you will never quite belong here. If I'm honest, Jesus' words deeply challenge me for how comfortable I've become. Living in this stunning part of the world, if a little smoky at times, amongst mostly pretty nice people. Mostly. And that challenge is intensified in the second and third encounters in our passage. Before we move there, what does it mean for you if following Jesus might mean little discomfort? Well, the second person that Jesus meets is called by Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, as he did to his disciples, those fishermen by the shore of Galilee. But this man hesitates because he's got some very important personal business to attend to. See verse 59. Sure, I'll follow you, but I've got some funeral. I've got a funeral to arrange. My father's funeral. I've got to attend to it. Isn't that quite a reasonable request, isn't it, Jesus? Just, just wait a bit. I've, I've just got to go and see to my father. I've got to honour my father's memory. After all, isn't this what the Jewish law demands itself? Can't Jesus wait? What do you think of Jesus' reply? Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Of course, I'm thinking the dead bury their own dead. The dead can't bury their own dead. If we were led the dead to bury their dead, it would be very smelly business. Following Jesus, though, is not something you put off till tomorrow or until the time is right or when you've crossed some things off your list, however good and important those are. Now, if there's one thing we all feel in this world, it's busy, right? It's the beginning of the year. You're sort of at peak busy right now, except there is the bit before Christmas when you feel even busier. Isn't that true? We all have the best intentions to do good things, get fit, spend more time with the family, take that course or read that book. But our lives are so incessantly crowded. Can't Jesus see what I've got on my plate? Can't he wait? Well, no, he can't. You can't put him off. There's no more urgent priority for you and for me. Not even the burial of your dad for your time, for your talents, or for your treasure. There's no more urgent priority for you and for me than the kingdom of God and for proclaiming it to others. There's no more important business that we could be about. That was the second man. Now we've got the third man. The third man also, in verse 61, has a to-do list. And it's also, it seems, quite reasonable. He says, I'll follow you, but first I need to say a fond farewell to my folks. Here's my old mum. I've got to go and say goodbye to her. Now, this man wants to follow Jesus, but it's on his own terms and in his own time. He comes to Jesus with an offer to follow him, but not really to follow him, as we discover. The terms and conditions remain on the man's side. He's bargaining with Jesus. 
I hear this quite often. I mean, most people aren't hostile to the gospel in Australia, it seems to me. They're quite ready to receive it. They're quite open to Jesus. As I say, many people admire him, but I hear this. I'll go follow Jesus. I'd love to investigate more about it. But I'll do it in my own way, thank you very much, or in my own time. Or, you know, I like to think of Jesus as this. And then you get a definition of Jesus that really is quite fictional and very appropriate if it comes straight out of the person themselves. A sure sign that you're doing this is if you think Jesus would always agree with your ethics and politics. If following Jesus is never a challenge for you, if it never makes you squirm, I venture to say that you aren't following him but you imagine that in some way he is following you. You aren't being conformed into his likeness, but that you're really hoping that he'll be conformed into yours. Because to follow Jesus is to become a new person. And you can't look back or imagine that you can have a foot in two camps or to straddle the two words, the worlds, even more that you can't be half pregnant then you can't, then you can be half pregnant. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a disciple simply burns his boats and goes ahead, reminding us of the legend of Cortez burning his boats when he got to South America so that his men would realize that he had, they had no option to go back, but had to stay and survive and follow him. So are you a follower of Jesus or are you just a fan? Are you ready for what following him means or are you keeping him at a distance? Are you ready to meet him on his terms or do you think you can cut some kind of deal with him, negotiate with him? Now, we live in a non-committal age, don't we? We, don't, we really don't like to burn our boats. We don't like to make decisions with no way back. We're afraid we'll miss out. We're afraid we'll be trapped. And we value so much, you and I, the, the right to self-determine, our individuality, the idea of being someone's follower sits uneasily with us. We like originality. We like to be our own man, our own woman. The idea of taking the plunge with Jesus, of leaving it all behind to follow him, of becoming a new person made in his image, is deeply at odds with these impulses. We'd much rather admire than follow. But Jesus says to you today, follow me. Looking at the lukewarm Christians in the 19th century Copenhagen, Kierkegaard said this, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. He renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life and will not let his life express what it is that he so supposedly admires. Not so for the follower. No, no. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. That's the challenge for us. Do we aspire with all our strength to be like Christ, 
to have him as our director, to reflect his character in our lives. Is that you, however imperfectly? Will you offer yourself to be so to Jesus, to be changed? Will you go where he goes? Will you go where he sends you? Will you stop clinging to your old self and give him your time, your talents, and your treasure? For there's no greater priority. There's no greater cause. There's no greater person that we can follow. You'll find, in fact, that once you set out on the way, that what we leave behind are the things we could not in any way keep. And that following the way of Jesus to the cross and into new life with him is full of joy and hope, love and God's richest blessing. Let's follow him. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.